0: Hello and welcome to the Talking Techniques Podcast. Brought to you by Biotechniques, this show brings you the latest from the frontiers of the life sciences, straight from the people exploring them. I'm your host, Tristan Free, digital editor of Biotechniques, and in this episode, supported by BioRad, we will explore the development of PCR, particularly looking at how the pandemic has highlighted the utility of droplet digital PCR, or DDPCR, and its role in molecular diagnostics, before going on to explore the use of DDPCR in research applications beyond the COVID-19 pandemic. Coming up, we will discuss the many roles of DDPCR during the pandemic and the ongoing part that it is playing in helping the world return to normal.
1: Food testing, we already have requests for people who want to have a COVID-free uh, shipment of coffee beans or cacao beans.
0: Yeah? And we get a sense of some of the most interesting applications and cutting-edge developments of DDPCR outside of COVID-19
1: one of the new coolest applications is to put a lot of these cells into droplets okay? so you can put a single cell into a single droplet to see if cells have certain genes incorporated in the same cell as another gene so you can in- interrogate these cells and see hey is there gene a is there gene b and do they sit in the same
0: cell my guest today is eddie van kolenberg market development specialist at BioRad. um eddie it's great to have you on the podcast Thank you. Welcome. So Eddie, firstly, I think it's pretty well known that qPCR, quantitative PCR, has established itself as the gold standard for detection of COVID-19. Can can you briefly explain why that is the case? I think
1: that's an easy explanation. Basically, the, it was already there when the pandemic hit it early 2020. ddPCR was a, or qPCR was a very established technology already and available to many diagnostic laboratories around our planet.
0: And it's um it's kind of seen as more reliable and more sensitive than than alternatives like lateral flow tests and sort of ELISAs for the virus.
1: Well, I think it's more important for the virus, since it's an RNA virus, that if you want to detect the RNA from the virus itself, which is there as soon as the virus hits somebody and infects a person, to have, uh, let's say, an antigenic response, or to even have antibodies in your system that takes days. So to have a really quick detection uh, capability, detecting the virus itself is the most easiest, and also it, it makes more sense from a clinical point of view.
0: So it gives you a much more immediate readout of that virus's presence because it's directly yes. detecting the RNA as yeah. opposed to waiting for an antibody response or detecting the uh, the proteins and and uh, antigens present. Yeah, yeah, um, that can take up to one or two weeks even. Okay, so in addition to that that immediacy in terms of the the presence of the RNA on infection, um, and also the fact that it was it was well established and in existence before the pandemic, um, are there any other key sort of key parts of qPCR that have made it so useful to people?
1: Yeah, sure. But the first question is was the person infected with the virus, yes or no? And QPCR is good enough to give this yes, no answer. I think lastly, it's a high throughput application. So when there was a need to really scale up to hundreds and hundreds of samples per day, or even go to into thousands, QPCR was, was there and all the automation supporting this technology were already established technologies.
0: Excellent. So it's that speed, both of the, the fact that uh, the point at which it can detect it in the infection stage, but then also at the uh, the speed at which you can conduct the test. But during this time, um, so the technique has been used extensively. Um, have there been any limitations that have been thrown up during this time or revealed during the course of the pandemic of qPCR?
1: Yeah, sure. Sure. I think most important what we discovered is was the shortage on all these reagents and plastic which we needed to use and to to, to scale up to millions and millions of, of essays in a week around the globe that was something which we learned that there were real bottlenecks in, in the workflow and everyone was fighting for the pipette tips uh, at some point.
0: So that kind of it was just that sheer demand um, sort of revealed the, the points the stress points in the actual procedure in terms of, of the reagents and the pipette tips and the, the lab equipment that you needed. Yeah. So when those limitations were revealed, how did the, um, the industry and then also the, the research community and the clinical community, how did they respond to those challenges?
1: Yeah, Everybody was looking for alternatives to look for, let's say, direct detection, for instance, where we didn't need the isolation. So at some point there was a quite short shortage on RNA isolation kits. So that we tried to find ways to go directly from, let's say, a swap sample and go directly into a PCR reaction. Of course, that works, but that also gives some other problems like more inhibition or less sensitivity.
0: And in, in trying to go for those those direct extractions and those different ways of obtaining samples, has this driven researchers to look at other varieties of, of PCR?
1: For sure. Uh, LAMP was at some point quite popular. I think the main reason to go into alternatives was also speed, uh, to look for results which gained results much faster. If you need to catch a plane and you want to get a result, it's nice to have a technology or a test which gives a result within one hour. And and technologies like LAMP, uh, the uh, isothermal amplification, was one of the solutions people used to speed up the whole process.
0: So, so while this is considered the more sensitive technique compared to ELISA's and, and the, the lateral flow tests, it still reports out there of limitations to the sensitivity of, of PCR. And also, again, regarding to the, the stages of infection and how long it takes for the, the virus to generate to a copy number high enough to be detected, um, to, to reach the limit of detection for the, the PCR tests. So how has this influenced how people look to PCR and use different varieties of PCR in the detection of of COVID and also in in more research purposes as well?
1: So as I said, it's like a lot of people were looking for, let's say, faster uh, time to results, but also a lot of other people were looking for more sensitive approaches since we knew and we saw in the field that QPCR generated quite a lot of false negatives. So we knew the virus was there. We saw the virus there with, with technologies but we couldn't detect it with qPCR. So these false negatives, of course, affected the results quite strongly, and that's why people were looking for alternatives.
0: And this is what digital came out. Dropped at digital PCR or DDPCR is then the answer to that, that sensitivity issue. C- can you give us a, a brief overview of, of how DDPCR operates? Basically, the
1: secret on, on digital PCR is the partitioning. So what we do is... You- before we PCR a sample, we, we split it into a partition. It is into uh, thousands and thousands of nanoliter-sized droplets. These droplets go into the PCR, which eventually will be counted. So the outcome of a digital PCR is the amount of positive droplets, positive emulsions, positive events in the PCR, giving you a direct count of the virus particles in a sample.
0: So what's the benefit there of, of splitting out the sample from this large bulk sample to into those? Tiny micro um, micro droplets. How does that allow you to be more sensitive with the um, this technique? The real
1: advantage of doing the partitioning is that you isolate everything into single small nanoliter sized PCR reactions, so each molecule gets its own chance to get amplified, and inhibition is not as important as in a two PCR reaction where you take everything into a bulk reaction. Okay. And the so- other advantage, of course, is that you use Um, these droplets to count the amount of virus particles without the need for standard curve. Okay.
0: So, so it's taking out some of the noise that you would get in the application from a a bulk sample.
1: It's not only the noise, but I would say you reduce the competition uh, of, of being able to amplify just a single molecule in a huge bulk
0: sample. Uh, And what does this ability allow you to do with DDPCR that you wouldn't be able to do with with typical QPCR?
1: Counting, that would be the most important, that you get an absolute quantification of the amount of virus particles in this example
0: in a sample. Um, And does DDPCR, would you be using it more for diagnostics, sort of clinical approaches, or would you also be using DDPCR in in the research um, and lab-based processes?
1: Yeah, so what we see that that... it already established uh, its footprint in the research laboratories and now is moving into a more diagnostic approach or a QC approach
0: okay and and so we've mentioned then quite a lot about the diagnostic capability of ddPCR or the applications outside of diagnostics for covid that this is the ddPCR has been involved in
1: yeah i think the most prominent application now is environmental testing food testing you already have requests for people who want to have a, a covid uh, free shipment of coffee beans or uh, chocolate uh, uh, beans so that's uh that's uh, chocolate beans i should say cacao beans yeah
0: of uh, course is that so is that people worried about things like the brazilian variant
1: yeah and they, they they can get infected by by for instance, people filling a ship and then get infected and they want to have a declaration that it's free of uh, of covid on the, on the shipment um, Surface testing People return back to offices we Want to make sure there's no COVID, they don't get infected. Um, so that that's, that's, a, that's a need for these type of applications. And of course, the most well-known in this field is wastewater testing. And we see that there's a really strong um, application for digital PCR due to the fact that there's a lot of inhibition in these type of samples. Sewage is not an easy uh, sample to detect, and this is where digital again plays uh, an important part by being less sensitive to inhibition
0: yeah so it must be one of the most sort of noisy samples that you can get so being able to pass through that all of the the extra clutter that you'll have in those samples to get to your your targets then yeah uh, is a real real benefit yeah fascinating it's very it's interesting to hear that there's all of these different different industries uh, and sort of export import markets are being um are also crying out for for ddpcr to validate their products and things Okay, so we've we've talked about how specific it is and the kind of level of detail that you can identify. So does does this mean that you'd be able to detect differences in the varieties and variants of of SARS-CoV-2 that are coming from or developing in different countries?
1: Yes, yes. We even have assays allowing that. You need to know how to differentiate between the different variants. So there are specific mutations uh, quite unique to, let's say, the Delta variant. And digital can detect these uh, mutations on, on the sequence and tell you if the Delta variant is, is there. But interestingly, it can also quantitate, uh, even in a wastewater sample, how much of the Delta variant um, is present.
0: And once you've been able to detect the presence of the variant within a wastewater, would you be able to then detect the amounts of, say, Delta in the wastewater versus Lambda?
1: Mm, yeah, yeah. Since you can quantitate, since you know that this mutation is unique, That's something which we already have seen and it's also published, that when the alpha variant, the UK variant, the alpha variant came up, it had a very specific mutation. The delta variant, when that came up, it didn't have this specific mutation. So you could see that one of the mutations was going down and the other one was going up.
0: And so you've mentioned its establishment in the the research space. Um, outside of COVID-19, what, what are some of the most exciting or interesting applications of DDPCR in, in research?
1: If you talk about outside COVID, I would say the most interesting applications are in cell and gene therapy based applications. What we also see is it's established already a, a real good footprint in liquid biopsy applications.
0: In the cell and gene therapies, is that in their um, their development or is it checking the contents of the gene therapies along along the way during their production? I would say the whole workflow okay. from quantifying
1: the virus to make it a product, eventually putting it into, into patients and then seeing how effective it is and how potent the virus is in, when it's doing its job in the patient.
0: Because I know there are a lot of um, analytical steps along the way in, in sort of cell and gene therapy development to, to check and validate that each step has been conducted correctly and that your, your vesicles and your plasmids contain the right DNA. And is it playing a role in kind of speeding up um, those developmental steps?
1: Both in development, but also in, in making it very precise. So you don't want to give too much virus to a patient to reduce the side effects of the virus itself. Too little doesn't help patients. So you really want to have, and that's that's really balancing between thin lines.
0: So again, it's that it's that um, precision, sort of, yeah, yeah, precision that's that's making the difference. So for liquid biopsy as well, so is that again in a similar situation to with COVID nineteen detection? Um, is it that kind of diagnostics and identifying those very small faint signals in in blood samples or specific tissue samples?
1: Exactly. So the. If you take a sample from from a patient, a liquid biopsy sample, and I think the most well-known is like plasma derived from a blood sample from a cancer patient, the amount of DNA circulating around in these type of plasma samples is very, very limited. So you really want to get the most out of your sample, and this is where digital really makes a big difference.
0: And do you think that's going to have an impact in terms of, um, with that increased sensitivity, the stage perhaps at which you can detect cancer patients maybe earlier on in the cycle when the cDNA is coming, um, beginning to enter the bloodstream?
1: Yeah, that, that's important. And, and just to detect the DNA, but also what type of mutations or copy number changes are in this, in this patient present, either to see how effective your, your therapy is working.
0: So you can use it both at the you could use it both at the diagnostic stage, but then also to assess how well therapies therapeutics are behaving in a in a patient, um, and then you could tailor your treatments based on those results. Would you is this the where we're trying to get to, or would you say that in certain aspects we're already there? In certain aspects, we're already there.
1: It still takes time to convince uh, certain let's say clinicians to really act on what they are seeing in, in liquid biopsy samples. But this is what we can do at the stage. So you can see that therapies are failing to work since we see mutations causing failure of the, the therapy. And that could be a reason to switch therapy into another second or third line therapy.
0: Um, and would you also be using these in the detection or the study of new new biomarkers uh, for different diseases? Cancer, obviously, is the um, sort of preliminary example.
1: No, I, I think that's that's where... Next-generation sequencing plays an important role. And this is what we see also in the field, that it's really, it's a beautiful combination of having a next-generation sequencer in in your lab together with a digital PCR, a droplet digital PCR machine in the lab, because these are really complementary
0: technologies. Okay, so using the NGS technologies to establish what is a biomarker and then actually being able to detect them very specifically um, and quantitatively with that ddPCR technique.
1: Exactly. Uh, if you talk about sensitivities in NGS, you probably uh, can go down to maybe to 1% or even maybe a little bit lower. And in digital PCR, it's quite easy to to get down to 0.1% uh,
0: sensitivities. So you've mentioned um, their cancer diagnostics, liquid biopsy, and then also the use in, in cell and gene therapies. Are there any other outside of those two key applications you find particularly interesting involving DDPCR?
1: I think the the most important application, what we see is expression of genes or detection of transcripts, could be fusion genes, could also be uh, just expression of certain genes. Uh, We see the need for detecting smaller fault changes into expression, but also to detect, um, for instance, something like microRNAs are normally very low expressed, especially if you relate that again to cancer. You look for microRNA expression in plasma samples. That's really difficult since it's so low expressed. This is where qPCR really struggles. And we see a really need um, for digital PCR applications.
0: What fields do you believe that those kind of applications will, will impact most as, as DDPCR gets um, taken up uh, more, uh, more widespread?
1: Um, I think the field of single cell applications will emerge. Uh, We already see it as uh, like a lot of discovery taking place. And I compare this always like 20 years ago, we had the the RNA um, arrays. And then people did a lot of qPCR to do the validation. Now we see a lot of, let's say, um, expression arrays on single cells. But I think digital can play a really nice role to do the validation there on single cell levels.
0: You mentioned that single cell sequencing was on and single cell studies were, were one of the most exciting the most exciting applications of this how is ddPCR being used in in studies of, of single cells and is it now a well-established process there or does it still need some work before it can be incorporated by researchers around the world one of the new coolest
1: applications is to put a lot of these cells into droplets right? so you can put a single cell into a single droplet and you can do studies to see if for instance certain let's say cells have certain genes incorporated in the same cell as another gene. So you can interrogate these cells and see, hey, is there gene A, is there gene B, and do they sit in the same
0: cell? And these applications need some development. So how many genes would be would you be able to compare from each individual cell?
1: At least two, but I would say three or four is quite easy to do. Fantastic. You and can that... look for integration of a certain event in the cell, if that happened, yes or no.
0: And to develop it further, what would you be looking to do? Would it be to, um, to examine more genes at the same time simultaneously, or would it be um, to maybe get different layers of omic of data from each one as well? So you could do the, the DNA and RNA at the same time, see what's being transcribed. That's
1: also a very interesting approach. It's something you can already do yeah, on, on, on DNA and RNA at the same time. But I think it's, it's important to create awareness with our customers that it's possible. Since in here you can't, you cannot, let's say, understand in the bulk reaction, where are your signals coming from? But in if you put everything into isolated droplets and you put cells into droplets and so you can interrogate each individual droplet to see, hey, I have an answer one, I have answer two. Hey, they sit in the same droplet, so they
0: sit in the same cell. Would you be able to have much of an, um, an indication of actually so, so you've got a, a tissue sample that you've homogenized and are doing through that um, that droplet. Would you have much of an idea of what that cell is um, that's got the, that's expressing those genes? Would it, would you have so say like this is a I don't know this is an epithelial cell? Would you have be able to say what each cell was that was um, giving a certain readout
1: yeah. um, within those mm-hmm. droplets? As as long as you have a unique marker. For that, so if you can have a mark which is unique, yeah, we can do that already with T cells, since we know we have a lot of different specificity in different type of T cells. So you can really interrogate what type of T cells you have and distinguish by, yeah, does it have this signal and another signal as well coming from the same T cell?
0: Fascinating. So if you're doing a um, an analysis of a, a, a blood sample, then you would be able to different differentiate. T-cell, um, red blood cell, say, and then also compare up to about three or four genes from each cell to see what's shared and what's not. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Um, fascinating. So going back to the, the impact of COVID in this space, how has that pandemic timeframe, how has that impacted DDPCR? Have, has the technique updated to um, adapt to the, the virus and its roles there?
1: Uh, not not too much, I think the technology was already established, uh, but we learned a lot in the, in, in, since we uh, introduced this in two thousand and twelve uh, and one of the things which we learned is that we can do much more targets, even if we have a two column machine. We can detect more than two or three or four targets in the same well, and we use this technology to push or this multiplexing technologies' capabilities into our technology and into our detection kits to get more. Information out of a single well.
0: And so, with that greater understanding of the technique and getting the most information out, do you have any key tips for people using these DDPCR techniques?
1: I would say please um, go to the DDPCR application guide and our DDPCR masterclass uh, videos, which are an excellent tool to really get into all aspects of optimizing your reaction and getting the most out of your assays.
0: But do you have any? Any sort of key pitfalls that you pe- think that people often fall into when they're using the technique that they should avoid?
1: Not, basically, that's not happening to experienced qPCR users because they, they find out very, very quickly that the workflow is exactly the same. So the same way as that they, they use still pipettes to into, pipette into plates, they use the exact same assays and they migrate simply into a qPCR into a digital PCR experiment without any hurdles.
0: Excellent. So the uh, the integration into a workflow and updating to, to this this technique is, is relatively simple. So if you could ask for one thing to to improve DDPCR further um, or to have it reach its full potential, be that in a diagnostic or in a research space, what would it be? Can I ask for two? Uh, yes, you can have two. <laughs> so first of all, I, I think we, we
1: really want more colors uh, detection channels in our technology uh, so six or more would be really nice so again to get out of these precious samples or at these little amount of samples even down to a single cell get as much as possible and and what was number two the my, number two would be to get more droplets To have more droplets to have um, even more sensitivity be able to put more sample into a, a well to allow for even a better sensitivity and for that, I would wish to go up to 100,000 droplets. That would be a really cool application to, um, to move into. So then would you be getting even smaller
0: droplets as well?
1: You probably will need to go into smaller droplets, but getting more droplets, um, moving into a more, uh, more sample, more than a better dynamic range. And certainly certain samples or certain applications require, um, let's say, more input to detect really the yeah, the needle in the haystack is something which we know but to detect the needle in the farm that would be really nice
0: Well, it's good to aspire to uh, take the simile to the limit um, Eddie, thank you for coming on the podcast I hope you enjoyed yourself I like it, yeah And thank you for listening to this episode of Talking Techniques If you'd like to find out more about the use of DDPCR in molecular therapeutics check out our in focus on the evolution of PCR over on www.biotechniques.com